Hi, listeners. Rachel here with an exciting announcement. We are holding a summer book club bingo game, and there is a card that you can download, a bunch of prompts for different types of books that you can choose to read to play the game along with us. All the instructions and information on how to sign up are at rachelthompson.co slash book club, where you can get your card. And you'll also be able to enter your card to win prizes throughout the summer months. So that's from May to September. We'll be running this book club bingo. I hope you will sign up and uh, read some cool books and be inspired to do some more writerly reading this summer. So all the information is at rachelthompson.co slash book club. What do editors want? It's a question that many creative writers have asked themselves or more likely muttered dejectedly after a frustrating rejection. I'm Rachel Thompson, author and literary magazine editor and your podcast host. The Lit Mag Love podcast grew out of my course by the same name, and I continue to seek out answers to this question of what editors want by going right to the source. I bring you interviews and insights about how to improve and publish your writing. My guest today on the podcast is Julian Esteban Torres Lopez. He's a Colombian-born journalist, publisher, podcaster, and editor. And before founding the nonfiction storytelling organization, The Naciona, he ran several cultural and arts organizations, edited journals and books, and was a social justice and public history researcher who wrote a column for Columbia Reports, taught university courses, and managed a history museum. Julian is a Pushcart Prize and Best Small Fictions nominee, and has written two books on social justice. And the Naciona is a non-fiction storytelling organization that amplifies the marginalized, undervalued, overlooked, and forgotten voices and experiences of our communities. So guided by a social justice compass, they cultivate the seeds of non-fiction through their podcast, publishing house, and creative non-fiction magazine, as well as by offering editing services and an internship program. One quick note about the episode, there is a point when Julian references a quote that he attributes to Rachel Cargill, and later he wrote me to say that actually it was Ijoma Olu who that quote should be attributed to, so listen for that in the episode. So the title of this episode and the call to you, writer, is to persuade, and as Julian put it, find your available means of persuasion to get yourself noticed and your story noticed and ask yourself questions like what's in it for readers and why should they give you their time. Here's my interview with Julian. So welcome to the Lit Mag Love podcast, Julian Esteban Torres Lopez. Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure. I want to ask you first about the Naciona's mission to amplify the marginalized, overlooked, and forgotten. And I'm wondering, how does creative nonfiction invite people, in your opinion, to be seen, remembered, and to the center? I think by its very definition, creative nonfiction, or at least a creative nonfiction that focuses on, on memoir, on personal essays, not the biography kind of creative nonfiction, I think that invites people to be seen simply because that is what you're trying to do. You're saying, hey, you're raising your hand and telling people, look at me, I have a story to tell, 
right? So in that sense, you're inviting people to see you because it's a story about you for the most part um, or your experience or some of your thoughts or some kind of trauma that you're trying to, to heal from or move forward from. That said, you can't be seen or remembered or come to the center um, or it becomes very difficult to do all that without a gatekeeper taking you under his or her or their wing and kind of amplifying your voice or giving you a platform because you can write all of the memoirs and personal essays that you want, but if no one is reading them because you don't have a following or a readership or someone who believes in you to, to, to get you out there on that stage, then it becomes very difficult um, to, to do that, to be seen, to be remembered and to be at the center. Now with regards to how, you know, we help, amplify specific kinds of stories, you know, the marginalized, the overlooked, the undervalued, the forgotten, and those who have been silenced. It's a very conscious mission to do that. We focus on trying to identify the systems of oppression, whether it's a patriarchy, whether it's, it's white supremacy, um, et cetera, et cetera, that have historically marginalized, overlooked, et cetera, different kinds of people, which means by definition, they have not been the default um, with regards to the way we tell our stories in culture, in the movies, TV shows, literature, who gets hired, who represents whom when we think of what an American is, who is valued, who is undervalued, et cetera. So even though a lot of this happens subconsciously with regards to what wasn't my intent to to marginalize these people, my heart was pure in the right place. We just ended up neglecting to talk about or represent 50% of the population because we're not including women, for example. There's a systemic issue there. So we, we make a conscious effort to focus on those voices, to focus on those experiences. And those experiences, because they are part of an oppressive system that, again, undervalues or silences them, et cetera, they tend to be neglected. So they have to either work harder to even be seen, to be remembered, or to be at the center. Um, so we provide that platform to do that. Um, and it's, it's, it's at the root of everything we, we do. Yeah, essentially, you become those gatekeepers who are opening the door and seeing and remembering and centering those voices. Yeah, without more individuals like us. Now, I, I recognize that because I am, you know, the director, executive director, whatever, founder of the Nishona, I have a lot of power now because I am in the industry. I am an authority in the field right, right now. And if you talk to a lot of people of color, a lot of different women, a lot of different individuals from the LGBTQIA plus community, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you ask them how you got your first break or your first job or whatever, it tends to be people who have also been historically marginalized under those systems of oppression, right? Um, because it doesn't matter what our resume looks like, whatever, we have all these unconscious biases that, or, or if you are explicitly <laughs> racist, then, you know, it's pretty obvious why your, your literary magazine doesn't, doesn't include so many voices. Um, so it's, it's a position of power that I take very seriously because, you know, I've also, I'm also a writer and author and, you know, creative in different ways. And I've experienced the neg negativity that comes from being a victim of those systems of oppression. So I want to be able to give back to the community in a way that others have given back to me. 
so we can move ahead. Now, I think the big thing, you know, why I think it's so important to have so many voices and experiences like this be seen and remembered and come to the center is that when the stories about us are told by people who don't understand us, who don't like us, who hate us, who just see us as entertainment um, or something to laugh at, etc., then that becomes the, the norm, the, the cultural norm, which then influences politicians, which then influences day-to-day behaviors, codes of conduct, etc., that ultimately do not help our causes to, to be seen, to be remembered, and to come to the center, right? And then it allows, it, it creates an environment for a couple of things. It creates an environment for those who have never had any real contact or experience with, with the marginalized, etc., to imagine us in a way that they've only seen us portrayed by people who really are looking to profit from us in one way or another. So they imagine us as caricatures that tend to be pretty negative, that then have impact on, on our day-to-day lives, whether it's, you know, we can't walk at night um, by ourselves, you know, or, you know, we fear being pulled over by a, a police car um, because we we're targeted. It's, so, you know, and we meaning so many different individuals that, that would fall under those different kinds of systems of oppression. Um, or we won't get a job because the, the, the name sounds like it's foreign and we equate foreigner or immigrant with someone who can't think intellectually because they might have an accent and you build this character up on your head. So one, there's, a, there's an image that's created in people's heads that tends to be limited, distorted, or false. And then two, we ourselves also are seeing those images. But then we ourselves kind of, for a lot of us, for a lot of people I've interviewed and spoken with and, and myself, you, if you grow in that kind of environment, you end up adopting, um, whether you like it or not, some of that, that self-hatred. And if you realize that if you yourself hate yourself because of this system that keeps devaluing you wherever you look and no one speaks up to defend you, then you can imagine how easy it is for people who don't have your experience to hate someone like you or to think less of you or a lesser human or not fully human and therefore more easily expendable or can be treated as a servant or et cetera, et cetera. So it's very important for those voices to come out, not only to change the culture, but then would help create a a more equitable, just, fair environment for everybody. So more people feel safe. So more people feel like they can reach those safe spaces to be authentic themselves. But also, so we can start seeing ourselves in the narrative. So if all I see on TV, for example, if if I'm a teenager, Latino, growing up in New Hampshire, where there, there aren't many others like me, like I grew up, and all I see is all these negative portrayals of me as, you know, recently all, you know, all blah, 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 are criminals, rapists, some of them are good, or all you see is representations of us who, um, you know, servants in one regard or another, um, then you, you, you don't, you kind of limit your imagination to what you see because you don't see other people, other role models who look like you, who've had your experience, be the, the professors, the doctors, the CEOs, the entrepreneurs, the artists, etc. Because, you know, even though they're out there, they're not speaking up because maybe there's a fear of a backlash if you raise your hand and stand up, right? So I think it's also very important not only to change the culture through that, 
for individuals who might not have an everyday experience of what the other is, but also for ourselves who are marginalized um, to be able to dream a little more, to see, to have different role models and to be able to, um, to create an environment where we can have a voice, be represented, be included in the conversations and therefore create an environment where we can more effectively situate ourselves to flourish and develop into what we can become. You so aptly put the stakes at hand for people working in the cultural sphere as far as I'm concerned. And and I'm just so grateful for all you've said and for the work that you're doing and the way that you're connecting those things between like justice and equality and being seen and remembered and being in the center of things. And then being able to center yourself too, if you're part of a community that's marginalized to be able to see yourself reflected in the arts. I know that you currently focus on stories um, and you put on your website related to being mixed race, LGBTQIAA+, and the diaspora and immigration and womanhood and trauma. Can you describe any recent work that stands out for you that you recently published in the Nashiona? So I would like to preface that with, we launched just a little over a year ago. Our mission hasn't changed, but it has become a lot more concrete. So the first year, I also have a background as as a social justice researcher. And the first year, what I wanted to do with the organization was to not have any specific themes, to have a mission that's vague enough, but has parameters, um, to just see what kinds of submissions we get and from whom, right? And then after the first year, I was able to reevaluate to see, okay, who is predominantly um, submitting and what kinds of stories? Uh, Because that says a lot about the industry, a lot about equity and inequity within the industry, within the writing community, who has the the privilege to tell these stories, who aren't telling these stories, etc. So the first year, we didn't really have many theme topics. We just left it open. Right. And it was uh, an eye opening experience, but not shocking because the industry is predominantly white, run by white men and or a lot of submissions coming from middle upper class white women. Right. So the stories that I really wanted to, sh- to share from the marginalized, overlooked, forgotten, undervalued and silenced, um, we weren't getting as many as I would have liked. Um, so then it became the mission to just be very specific. Okay, now that we, we've done the first year, we have a gathering, uh, a readership, a listenership, et cetera, then let's focus on the, on the communities that we want to focus on. Um, so we're, gonna, we're starting with five this year, and that's going to change. I have a lot of different communities that we're going to also include in different issues. But right now, as you mentioned, the, you know, being mixed race, um, LGBTQIA+, diaspora and immigration, womanhood and trauma. And we're also, this month, also going to open up for Latina, Latino, Latinx uh, stories. Because of that, we are just getting a lot of submissions coming in for a lot of those different topics. Um, so we, we've published more, let's say, on on womanhood and trauma, our series uh, entitled Give Us a Smile, because um, that's the first one we launched as, as a theme topic. Um, a couple of, of stories from that, I, I don't want to say recent, because there's still so many great ones that we haven't published. And sometimes it just, for me, one way for me to really judge if a piece is, is, is really powerful 
it evokes something is if I can remember it and still think about it, not a week ago, because since we published it a week ago or a month ago, but a year later. A few that really stand out for me um, from that series in particular, Laurel Brown's Open Season and is her first published piece, which is great. So it, it sticks with me to this day. I mean, she, she experiments with the genre. It's a bunch of different vignettes. And she also uses photography in it. And she ultimately explores the, the flashes of microaggression that women suffer and internalize every day, as well as the, the battles for autonomous power that ultimately surrounds female bodies in public spaces. Now, as a man, it brought me into a world that I believe all men and all boys kind of need to step into to take more seriously. So that, that to this day still sticks with me, right? Because I can be, you know, for women's rights and gender equality, et cetera, theoretically. And then you feel like you need a pat in the back because you don't feel like you have, you're part of the problem just because you believe in certain kinds of rights. But ultimately, what am I doing as a man to use my privilege to, to create safer spaces, et cetera, for, for all women and all girls, right? And how are they experiencing different kinds of microaggressions day to day? Um, so that story has really stuck with me. Oh, ahead, it just really shows the power of a story to bring you there too. Like just to, like you're saying, you have that awareness of fighting for women's equality, but then to actually almost step into someone's skin and live that experience through a story, it sounds like. That's really powerful. It's very powerful. Um, and someone also who does that, who was going to talk about is Mireya Esvela. Um, we just published her collection, her, her first book, her collection of, of, of essays called Vestiges of Courage. And she was an individual who I, who hadn't submitted to us, but, you know, as, as an editor for the Nashona, you know, I'm always looking for talent out there, or different voices and stories that we would also like to share. And I stumbled actually upon her artwork that really spoke to me. And then through our conversations and getting to know each other, she's like, oh, by the way, I also write creative nonfiction. I'm like, what, you're shitting me. Um, let me read some of it. So then that's how we kind of got started with that kind of relationship. And she's just another talent. Obviously we published her, her collection of different essays um, and four pieces from that collection were nominated for the Pushcart Prize. Um, one of them was ours. We published Doctoris, but most of the other pieces got published in different journals and magazines. You know, she, what I like about her is that she outwardly displays her pain and frustration, specifically with certain systems of oppression. Um, and she kind of steps towards making sense of her experiences, right? So she really looks into the mirror and whether it's going to be a good or bad experience, um, she looks to kind of, to be as honest as possible to try to figure out what that trauma is. So her voice is personal, her voice is honest, and it penetrates the self in, in a courageous way that I don't think all creative nonfiction authors go as far as, as she's gone. It takes a certain courage, unlike other different genres of, of writing, to be a creative nonfiction writer, um, or at least a memoir author, a personal author of personal essays, or at least to be a good author of personal essays and memoir. I think you need to be courageous in a certain way um, to really be able to unpack that and be honest and real with yourself and vulnerable um, and not care as much about what others are going to say. Even though the memoir seems like you're only writing for yourself because it's a story about you, you really, if you really want to share this stuff with the world, you're really only writing for one person and you're ultimately writing for 
that potential reader. She understands that. And not only that, not only the, the topics that are covered, like Laurel Brown's open season, it wasn't just the stories, but the presentation of the stories, right? There's, there's a creativity and artistry. Um, you can tell that it was processed. Um, you can tell that there's thought. And, and here's the thing. If I can stop being an editor when I'm reading a piece and just enjoy the piece, the author did something right. Because I am very picky. You know, and, and that's all I do all day is just read pieces, edit pieces, provide feedback, substantial, you know, editing, structural editing, whatever. So my mind is always, I, I can't shut it off. So I can't enjoy certain pieces of work um, unless it's, I don't want to say good because this isn't, this isn't a moral, moral thing, um, but it's effective to then have me turn off my editor self and just enjoy it as a reader. So she, she's able to do that for me as well as Laurel Browns. And since someone else who, just to go off that with the artistry of the presentation, the stories are good. But Rachel Bavardier's um, work, we published two of her pieces. Um, and she's experimenting with form of creative nonfiction in a way that really enhances the story that she's trying to tell. So it's, for me, it's really refreshing to see writers test the boundaries of the genre. So I'm really excited to see kind of what, what she ends up coming up with um, any any new piece of hers. Uh, she's she's very creative in the presentation aspect. So I hope that I get similar kinds of things, but different kinds of things from all the other themes that we are currently open for submission for. Wonderful. Yeah, Rachel is a, a student of mine as well. So I'm so excited to hear her name among those <sighs> names. And it strikes me as the thing that makes you stop and just start reading it and not engaging as an editor. And I know that this real feeling you have where you kind of just can settle into a piece and trust mm -hmm. the writer. And it strikes me that the thing that they're doing that for anyone writing creative nonfiction who's listening can take notes towards this is just that deep um, truth telling and that, vulner mm -hmm. that vulnerability and the willing to say things that nobody else will say, or very few people will say in writing. And it's something, I mean, I'm, I'm writing creative nonfiction myself right now too. So that's something I'm trying to unpack for myself too, is like how to get to that. What's the truth beneath the truth? Like a certain levels of the drafts, I think can go a little bit more superficial. And then you start peeling back those layers of the onion of what, you know, what's really happening here. And how can I be more honest in my work? We get hundreds of submissions and not all of them focus on, especially when we had more general submissions, um, you know, you get submissions about someone's cat or someone's dog or someone's porch, right? And not that that's, that you can't write effective stories, engaging stories that are creative nonfiction about that, but it's just not the kind of work that we're looking for. Like there's very little courage to tell a story about how much you like your cat, right? But a lot of courage to be to speak up years after you've experienced sexual harassment right um because there's a risk involved right and there you're trying to get to a certain kind of truth of some kind of healing something that you want other people to to learn from etc so there's i think there's a spectrum with that with regards to peeling that onion to get to a truth sometimes you have a lot more layers and sometimes truth matters in some creative nonfiction stories and it really doesn't in others like if if i get submitted a, a story about a relationship with someone's dog who passed away, you know, that story better be presented in a, in a very artistic, creative way because the topic itself doesn't grab my interest as much. 
for what we're trying to do with the magazine, you know? So what, what is that internal conflict? What are you dealing with? What are those demons? Because if you can't get me to be invested in your own struggle, then, you know, sorry to say, it's not, it's not, uh, it's not going to go through. The chances of publishing a story on that topic are slim, but then for you to want to publish it, it would have to be connected to some bigger topic or meaning, or it has to symbolize something or create some other layer of understanding. The, we've talked a little bit about the qualities of writing that you're eager to read in submissions to the Nashiona and, and the topics. Um, but I wondered if you wanted to expand any more on some of the qualities of, you know, that brave truth telling, that mm-hmm. um, going deeper and experimenting with form to telling the stories about, that are really about your deepest struggle. Is there, mm-hmm. Are there other qualities that you're looking for in, in the work that you receive? And maybe can you speak to the kind of work that you get that is just not suitable for the publication and that you have to decline because it's not a fit for you? Definitely. So a, a couple of things come to mind because there is definitely, you know, after a year, um, there are patterns that you end up noticing. So there are certain things that I'm still thirsty for, right? And I'm, I'm thirsty for more humorous stories. I find humor, um, especially in dealing with trauma or, or any kind of, of truth-seeking kind of experience, it's, it's, it's difficult for obvious reasons because there are sensitive topics. But I also find comedic writing to be extremely difficult. Um, so I would like to see see more humorous pieces that obviously deal with serious topics. But I would like to see some more of those. Um, not to make light of the topics, but it's just a different way to to tell the story through creative nonfiction that I don't think is tapped into enough in the genre. Um, or maybe I'm not just you know, others aren't publishing it and therefore we're not getting as many submissions uh, with that, for, you know, through that kind of lens. Another one that I would really like to see more of, you know, I, I spoke about courageous writing, right? But most of the courageous writing that, that we get is courageous writing from individuals who have been victims of some kind of oppressive systemic kind of institution um, that manifests itself in their day-to-day lives, right? So, which obviously those stories need to be told for the reasons I already covered earlier. But I, I, and I have to bring this up because we don't get as many submissions of individuals talking about how they too might have a role in the systemic um, oppressive kind of institutions and structures, right? So I would love to to have people's stories who not only look in the mirror and tell us how they've been victims of these systems of oppression, but how they themselves have also been a part of systems of oppression. You know, it may be simultaneous, simultaneously you were victim and victimizer, right? And, and that creates a different kind of bond with the reader, at least with me, when the individual isn't always just saying, you know, I'm the one who's been, you know, I'm the victim. And obviously, I'm not trying to minimize those stories because we are victims in so many different ways, which is why we exist. But how are we standing in our own way? So what are we doing? So I'll give you some examples, right? The, uh, 
I'm very interested in what's going on right now with climate change and what's going on with, you know, Brazil's Amazon burning. So there's, you see a lot of discussions on the news, Twitter, et cetera, talking about, you know, they, the, the dislike for the current president there and the kind of policies that create a certain kind of look away, don't care as much about the land and the people in that land as much as they do about profit, right? So there's there's an outrage from that. But then, okay, well, you know, you are a victim of that because it's going to impact you. But what is your role in in there being an industry that is pushing to clear this for cattle, for foresting, et cetera, et cetera. Like how often do you think about your role in the way you consume that uses so much paper, so much gas? How, how, how many burgers do you eat a year, right? That is also contributing, right? So there's not enough of those stories. There's a lot of, you know, I'm outraged at how I've been treated, but not I'm outraged of the fact that I just realized, shit, I have been sexist and I'm part of the problem, right? There's this um, Rachel Cargill, she's great to follow. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name properly, but she said, she wrote something that I read the other couple months ago that has been, that stuck with me. And I think she put it in a really good way. And she's talking about racism and white supremacy in, in, in general or specifically. And she said something along the lines of, if your anti-racism work focuses more on the comfort and convenience of let's say the the person who who said the racist remark or, or the racist for example over the the integrity the security and the safety of let's say the person of color um who's the victim of the system then your anti-racism work is not really anti-racism work but it's just another form that white supremacy manifests itself, right? The constant ga- gaslighting, the giving the benefit of the doubt, et cetera. So what is your role in the system that does that, that helps enable that? So I, I would like to see more of those stories, um, looking in the mirror to kind of figure out what was my role in this whole thing? And in a way, what was my role in victimizing myself, right? So I think that it, that, goes, that goes deeper in that layer of truth that is, I think, harder to deal with. So I know you say you identify as a cultural hybrid, and I read on your website that you have had over 80 roommates, making it difficult Mm -hmm. to call one place home. I'm wondering, how does cultural hybridity influence how you read books and submissions? You know, I I think having those experiences, I mean, 80, living with 80 different people, I stopped tracking after 80. So it's more than 80 now. And, and I've lived in five different countries. So you have a lot of different kinds of cultures, you know, and, you know, living with people who are on all kinds of the spectrum, whether it's, you know, religious, political, cultural, different races, different ethnicities, different beliefs, different you know, ages, et cetera, et cetera, it kind of creates a certain sensitivity to the concerns of, of different people that I might not have ever gotten a face-to-face or first-hands kind of experience that I might have only experienced through watching television or reading books, right? So I think that created a certain kind of empathy um, and interest in in different cultures in, 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 in any way you can define the word culture. So I think that the cultural sensitivity 
um, is always in the forefront for things that I read, you know, in terms of, I mean, I have a background in justice, um, in terms of like, in philosophy and, and ethics and how we treat each other and create institutions or organize ourselves in order to, to better situate us to become who we want to be in the most positive way possible. So I'm always looking at, aside from the artistry and the creativity of presenting and telling stories, I'm always looking to see if there's a certain kind of of sensitivity that comes from the author as well, um, how this is going to land with readers, because that's ultimately my job is to curate these stories that are going to help further our mission along, not just share interesting stories that are told well, but share interesting stories that are told well to accomplish what kind of like you, we talked about earlier, you know, to be seen, remembered and brought to the center so we can imagine people in different ways so then we can better coexist in a plural world so that that that's always at the forefront for me and i think the more people who are submitting to the nashona understand that ultimately i have the final say i am the gatekeeper the more you understand um, where i'm coming from and therefore those managing editors that i train um, also will have that filter the the greater the likelihood that will take more interest in your work. Has editing changed your own writing? So working with the Nishiona, has that changed how you write? I mean, the, the short answer is is yes. I mean, I guess I answered it. Yes. Is there any, I, I can go deep in different ways, but is there is there an angle? <laughs> yeah, I guess I'm wondering about, like our focus is, we're talking to the people who are submitting to Lit Mags mm-hmm. and... Often, actually, I do encourage people who want to get published in LitMags to find seek opportunities to start reading for LitMags and mm-hmm. understanding what's working, being able to articulate to themselves why mm-hmm. why did this piece succeed and why did this piece not succeed. Have those kind of things struck you and and influenced how you write? Maybe we can talk a little bit more from a technical standpoint of of how you've been influenced. I mean, many things stand out for me, and, I, and every time I read an essay, I learn so much. Um, because people are telling specific stories in very different ways and, and very creatively. I mentioned just the, the presentation of it alone kind of can stand out, right? You can tap into different, different ways of storytelling from different genres to write a personal essay, right? You can go very chronological. You can go in a way that uses kind of, you know, the suspense thriller genre, right? Um, you can... You know, there's just so many creative ways to do that, right? But also, you get to see, looking at the back end, you you get to see the quality that you don't ever get to see if you're not in a position to go through the slush pile, right? So in a way, you get to see your competition if you look at it as a competition, which in a way it is um, because you are competing for a spot in a journal. You're competing you know, for literary agents. You're competing for publishing contracts, right? So it... it has provided me an insight into um, an industry that I would have never gotten an insight from um, because what I see if I'm not in the industry like that, um, all I see is the polished work, right? So you get to see different levels of, of effective writing. In, in that sense, it's, it's more explicit how much of a competition it is, right? Because that is my role is to move people up in the priority of the rankings to then discuss with my team to see which pieces we should submit. So I think that's that's helpful, just that knowledge to change my writing. Um, 
also just knowing very explicitly that you're not writing for yourself, right? You're writing for someone like me who might take you under their wing and, and amplify your voice and give you a platform. So just kind of recognizing that the first sentence, then the second sentence, then the third sentence are pretty much the most important sentence, sentences of your submission's life. Like you're pitching your story ultimately. You're pitching it to me, right? Or, you know, in this way as a writer, I'm pitching it to someone else who's like me. So don't just assume because you felt obliged to write a story, to write this personal essay, that I or, or, or my readers um, feel obliged to read it. So ultimately, you got to take your ego and entitlement off the, out of the equation, right? That, that's something that really kind of stuck with me the more, I, the more submissions I read and the more issues we published, you know. So, I mean, you assume that memoir is about you, you know, touched upon it a little bit. But it's really, it really isn't unless you don't care about sharing it with the world. Um, so when you sit down to write with, with whatever, with tea or on one side and a pencil sharpened or you know, a battery charge, whatever way you write, there is only one important person in your life. And that's the stranger at that point. It's, it's the other, it's that, that gatekeeper, um, the reader. I, I spend a lot more time now than I did before trying to understand who my reader is when writing a memoir, personal essays. That is, if you want to get published and or create a readership, always remember that though this is important to you, that there's no one has to read your shit, like find your available means of persuasion, you know, in any given case to get noticed, um, to get yourself noticed, to get your story noticed. So you have to ask yourself why, you know, why should your readers read your work? What's in it for, for them? What value are you adding? Uh, why should they be invested in your story and then give you their time? You know, what makes you stand out from the other hundreds of submissions? Now, all these things are always now going in the back of my mind more so than before I launched this organization. So is your story extraordinary? You know, is it the way you present your story? Is it hypnotic? Uh, is it your language that makes it stand out? Um, again, use your available means of persuasion to grab me. Um, and for me to think about the the other gatekeepers, for me to grab them from the very beginning and keep them engaged because, you know, I can promise you this, if you don't hypnotize me as a gatekeeper, there is no way in hell that I'm going to waste my reader's time curating pieces that aren't worth their time. Um, so whether you like it or not, if you're not, you're competing here. Um, I'm competing here. You know, it's, is, is your piece of, of it's something as small as using too many cliches can get you to not move forward. You know, is your piece isn't proofread. Um, you have too many mistakes. You, you don't follow directions from the submissions guidelines. Um, or there's a lost opportunity or you tell too much instead of showing. You know, all those little things, because it is a competition in the hundreds of submissions, sometimes thousands, that you really got to process and polish your work if you want to advance and get through to the publication stage. So you have to figure out how do I man minimize my chances of, of not being able to advance to the next round. So that I think um, has impacted me more as a, as a writer now than, you know, let's say a year ago. And I've, I've been in the industry a long time, but I think for this past year has really solidified that in me. Just from the volume of reading you've done for the Nashiona? 
Yeah, the volume of reading, the amount of interviews I've done, the uh, the different relationships I've had with 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 memoir and personal essay authors, different mentorship opportunities, etc. I want to thank you so much for talking with me today and sharing your lit mag love with us. Can you tell us what's next for the Nashiona? I'm always thinking of different ways to to develop and amplify voices and create different platforms. So, you know, we obviously have the magazine. Uh, we also have the podcast. We'll continue with all those. And we have different series that we're developing for both of those. Internship and mentorship program, we'll continue with that. We also have a press, so a publishing house. So we have several different anthologies that I would like to to publish next year, as well as, you know, different poetry collections and personal essays and memoirs from different authors. But the focus right now is to continue the kind of quality work that we've been doing to stay aligned with our mission, um, to increase the quality. But also now, I mean, we, we have no funding. And in a way, I'm kind of, this is a, a Consider it a very elaborate blog. <laughs> um, my blog that I've brought a lot of people into to increase the network of help to create something worthwhile for readership. So the second year right now is I'm trying to build those partnerships and relationships with different individuals who want to help us succeed in our mission. So then a lot of the things get taken off my shoulders. So then I can focus on finding different funding opportunities, partnership opportunities, so we can be self-sufficient. And obviously, just continue with so many different topics and themes that we want to fo- put um, to highlight and amplify um, outside of the, the five that we already have, right? So, uh, you know, we're going to tackle disability experiences. We're going to tackle, tackle climate change in the future. We're going to tackle a lot of different kinds of arenas from different systems of oppression, you know, being an atheist, atheist stories, agnostic stories. There's a lot that we want to do, but right now just focusing on, on the five that we mentioned earlier. Wonderful. Thanks again for sharing your lit mag love with us, Julian. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. So there's so much to glean from my conversation with Julian. In fact, much of it was me kind of sitting back and just enjoying the connections that he makes and the way that he was able to express really the importance, the vital work that we're doing in literature. Often writers will talk to me about how they don't know if what they're doing is important given all the troubles in the world. And I just love that he really talked about both centering people from within the margins and centering yourself from the margins too. So really looking at those voices to come out and not only change the culture, but so more people can reach those safe spaces to be authentic themselves. And that's a vital and, and such important work. And I, I feel so strongly about how that connects to the bigger picture of why we're working in this space and why why this is incredibly important. He talked a lot about creating an environment where we can have a voice and be included in the conversation, situating ourselves, being seen and brought to the center, and just allowing people to look in the mirror about how they've been victims of systems of oppression. But one of the things I think you can pick up as someone, if you're considering submitting to the Nestiona, is to look at how you yourself have been part of systems of oppression. So not minimizing the stories where maybe you have been the victim, but what are the ways that you're standing in your own way or what are other ways in which you have been a perpetrator yourself? And then 
I took the theme of the episode and the call to call to you to be persuasion, to persuade. And I think he made some really important notes about writing memoirs. You can write all the memoirs and personal essays that you want, but if you can't manage to connect somehow with the reader, if you don't understand that you're you are writing to an audience, then something as small as he puts it as too many cliches or not proofreading your piece, those kind of things are part of that persuasion too, is understanding how to really present yourself in the best light. He mentions that you're writing to, for someone who might take you under their wing and amplify your voice and give you a platform, but the first sentence, the second sentence, and the third sentence are vitally important to bring you to those gatekeepers who are ready to open the door to you. And another thing that's not um, specifically in this interview, but that I've noticed recently is that uh, Julian and the Naciona are making a call for Latina, Latino, Latinx people to submit their writing. And they've been calling out a few times saying they haven't had a lot of submissions. So if you're listening now and from that community, that would be a great place for you to share your work. I'll mention again that the quote from Rachel Cargill that he mentions in the interview is actually someone that should be attributed to Ijoma Oluo. And she wrote, if your anti-racism work prioritizes the growth and enlightenment of white America over the safety, dignity, and humanity of people of color, it is not anti-racism work, it's white supremacy. And I love how he brought that to the table here to really talk about what I think is one of the most important parts about literature, certainly why I'm involved in this work, is the idea that we want to afflict the comfortable and comfort the afflicted. There are links in the show notes to this episode to both the piece by Laurel Brown, Open Season, and to both Rachel Cargill and Ijoama Oluo. Lit Mag Love is co-presented by Room Magazine, Literature, Art, and Feminism since 1975, and the Lit Mag Love course, an online course to get smart, fearless, and published with lots of help from me. Sound editing for the episode is done by Micah Lemiski, and I'm your host, Rachel Thompson. If you want to give us some love in the form of a review wherever you get your podcast, we would love that and it really helps other writers discover the podcast. You can find us online at litmaglovepodcast.com or on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at litmaglove. Thanks for writing and reading literature and thanks for listening to Lit Mag Love. Join our game of book club bingo this summer. Learn more and sign up at rachelthompson.co slash book club.